Our text for this morning is found in Hebrews chapter 8, and I'm going to read verses 6 through the remainder of the chapter, verse 13. And if you're uh, following along with me, uh, you find it in your own Bible. Otherwise, under the pew ahead of you, there's a pew Bible. And you'll find this text in the pew Bible on page 1,426, 1426. So starting with verse 6. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts, and I will be be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. When he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Our Father in heaven, I, I beg of you that this word would be written on our hearts by the Holy Spirit now, and that you would do what the text is about that you would not merely inform our minds about this text, but that you would perform this text in our minds. The new covenant is that your will would be written not on stone, but on soft hearts, and thus bring from the inside out delight and obedience. Lord, none of us likes to be told what to do. We are rebels to the core. Would you now, I pray, subdue us. Break our pride and rebellion. And from the inside out, produce a willingness, a delight in the law of the Lord. Lord, I cannot do this. No matter how I speak, I cannot do this miracle. But I ask for your help now to speak this truth and trust that your word is loved by your Holy Spirit who inspired it and will make it the means of the transformation, indeed, perhaps for some, the salvation in this moment. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Last week, I said that 
Christmas means the uh, replacement of shadows with reality. Remember that? I said that in the Old Testament, the, the temple and the tabernacle are shadows. The priesthood was a shadow. The sacrifices were shadows. The feasts and dietary laws were shadows. I got all that from the verse just before the one that Irv just started with. Notice in verse 5, you see that little phrase at the beginning where it says, these things were copies and shadows of heavenly realities. And now Christ, replacing all those Old Testament priests, all those Old Testament sacrifices, all that gathering at the temple comes at Christmas and he's the reality. That was the point of last week's message, which means that in the New Testament, faith and worship and life in Christ is a radically spiritual, internal, personal thing, as opposed to ritualistic or externalistic or traditionalistic. It's very intensely personal and Radically spiritual. And then I said at the end of the message, there's a reason for this. Why in the New Testament you have hardly any emphasis on form. And the reason is that Christianity is a missionary faith. It is a go tell religion instead of a come see religion. The Old Testament, for its appointed dispensation, was a come-see religion. Remember the Queen of Sheba? Come-see. And she walked through the temple and, and other kings came and the kings showed them what they had. He says, wow, what a God. And that's exactly what was supposed to happen. That's why the temple was so big. That's why everything was so lavish. That's why money was spoken of the way it was spoken of so much in the Old Testament. And is so radically differently spoken of in the New Testament. Lest you go back and justify all your huffing and puffing barn building today by Old Testament talk. The shadows... Flee when the reality, Jesus, comes and everything is stripped down to essentials. Why? Because this thing is to get out of Israel to the nations. You could not transport the Holy of Holies to every people group in the world. It wasn't designed that way. There was a priesthood, there was a tabernacle, there were feasts, there were dietary laws, there was circumcision, precisely to separate them from the nations. And if the nations wanted to come and get converted to Judaism, fine. But that's not our religion. The fulfillment of that Old Testament hope is that the reality himself has come and he doesn't say any longer, tell people to come see your great buildings. Or tell people to come see your great anything. It's you go show them your great Christ by carrying his afflictions in your body. Through love to the nations. Now that's last week. Now what Irv just read you, verses 6 to 13, is a further explanation of how this radical Spiritualization and internalization and 
personalization of the faith works. You see, if if all you've got is God sending Christ as the reality, and he puts him forth, glorious replacement for all those shadows in front of us, and leaves us looking at him, and does not, by his spirit, move into this rebel heart, you know what I'll do with that? I'll create a religion. And it'll be a man-made, willpower, piper-exalting religion. Oh, I'll be religious, thank you. The flesh does religion real good. If God doesn't do something more than just set the reality before me, namely, make it real in me, I'm a goner. I'm a goner. And that's the new covenant. The new covenant is God not only putting forth the reality to end the shadows, but moving on the reality Christ by the Spirit of Christ into this hard heart and shattering it. And on the soft, supple, warm, live heart that emerges, writing a law. So that it comes from the inside out. If he doesn't do that for me, well, I might, in the power of the flesh, go on being a religious person for a while. But it won't be Christianity. And it won't reach the nations. So let's look at this text and the new covenant and how it completes what we saw last week. Let's start at verse 6. Hebrews 8, 6. But now Christ has obtained a more excellent ministry. Now, he's contrasting it with the ministry of the priest in the Old Testament who were a kind of mediator between God and man as they managed the tabernacle where they met God. He has a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant. There's the reference to the new covenant that we'll see in a minute. Which has been enacted on better promises. So now work your way backwards through that text. The new, test, the new covenant brings some better promises. We'll see them in a minute. They're quoted from Jeremiah 31. The better promises on them enable a better engagement or arrangement called a covenant, an arrangement between God and man. This is better. What Christ brings and mediates for how we relate to God is better than what was going on back there. And so he's the mediator of a more excellent ministry. Verses 7 and 8. Let's see what this is. For if that first covenant. Now that's a reference back to the Mosaic giving of the law at Mount Sinai. We'll see that too from Jeremiah. For if that first covenant had been faultless. Ooh, you mean there's something wrong with the Mosaic law? Ooh. There would have been no occasion sought for a second. That's what Jesus is bringing. Verse 8. For, now watch the wording carefully here. For, finding fault with them, not it, them, he says, 
Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. And he quotes Jeremiah 31. When I will effect a new covenant. Now, we got to ask the question here. What's the fault? Verse 7 says, if that first covenant had been faultless, there wouldn't be any need for another one. So there's something wrong in the arrangement with how to deal with God. And yet, verse 8 seems to want to protect us from indicting the law itself or the Mosaic covenant itself. Because verse 8 says, for in finding fault with them, he says, I'll bring you a new covenant. So the question is, what's the fault? Who are the people that he made a covenant with? What's the fault in the covenant? And he answers that question Real clearly in the next two verses. Let's read them. Verses 8 and 9. For finding fault with them, them, he says, now he quotes Jeremiah 31, 31 to 33. Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Verse 9. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. So now we know what the first covenant is. They were coming out of Egypt. A few months later, they're at the foot of Mount Sinai. God comes down and says, here's my covenant with you. And he reveals himself and he establishes a law and how the people were to relate to him in those days appropriate for that time. For, now here's the, here's the flaw. Finish the rest of verse 9. For... They did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. That word there, care for them, used in verse 4 of chapter 2 where it says, um, do not neglect such a great salvation. So what he's saying here is, I neglected them. They would not have my covenant, so I gave them over again and again to be judged and to be defeated often till they cried to me and returned to their covenant commitments and so on. So here we see who it is that got the covenant. It was the people of God at Mount Sinai. When and how it was as they were coming out of Egypt, God had blessed them. He brought them. It says right at the beginning of the covenant in Exodus 19, I brought you out on eagle's wings. I split the sea for you. That's the kind of God I am for you. And then he makes with them the covenant as he gives them the Ten Commandments and the other stipulations on Mount Sinai. But we see also the fault here. It wasn't a fault in the law. It was a fault in the people. They weren't covenant keepers. we got to get this clear now. The old covenant, the law, the Mosaic law, was not defective because the commandments were bad. Nor was it defective because there was no grace or forgiveness or mercy. You, you remember the words, don't you? They're some of the most beautiful, oft-repeated words in the Bible. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. The flaming mountain. Moses is on the mountain. God passes by. And the first word he speaks by way of covenant relationship is... Yahweh, Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord, a God, the first words out of his mouth, a God merciful and gracious, 
slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving not just one kind, but three kinds, iniquity, transgression, and sin, and showing steadfast love and faithfulness unto thousands of those who love me. That's the law. That's Mount Sinai. That's gospel. You know, Hebrews is the one book in the New Testament that calls the law gospel. We saw it back in chapter 3 and chapter 4. And who says that the reason that the people who heard it at the foot of Sinai didn't enter into the promised land is because of what? Unbelief in the good news of Sinai. I'm your God. I carry you on eagle's wings. I offer you forgiveness. I establish a way of getting right with me through the blood of animals, pointing toward the blood of my son. I am a good, patient, forgiving, kind, merciful, loving God. Please do not contrast the old covenant and the new covenant as one bad news and one good news. As one law, legalism, get right with God by your own efforts, and the other, gospel, faith, get right with God by trusting a Savior. That's not the contrast. The contrast is the fault, and it was that the people failed to believe. Now, if you ask, well, why... Did they? Or was there something about the arrangement that causes belief to happen now, but not then? The answer is that you can account for this flaw in the covenant, old covenant, in two ways. One is from God's side and the other is from man's side. From man, the answer would be hard-heartedness. And we saw that three times, four times already in Hebrews. Harden not your hearts as they did at the waters of Meribah. Harden not your hearts. Harden not your hearts. Harden not your hearts. Four times in the book of Hebrews, the plea that today the church would not harden its heart the way they did in the old covenant. So hard-heartedness and unbelief was the human answer to why the covenant aborted. But that's not the deepest answer. The deepest answer is that God withheld transforming sovereign grace. He could have sovereignly seen to it that all these rebels with their hard hearts were shattered and their hard hearts softened and their rebellion overcome. He could have done that. But he didn't. And the reason we know he didn't is that he says he didn't in Deuteronomy 29.4. I'll I'll read it to you. Here's Moses, 40 years of watching these rebellious people in the wilderness. And he says in Deuteronomy 29, verse 4, probably with an ache in his heart and a break in his voice. To this day. The Lord has not given you a heart to know, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear. The old covenant was gospel minus enablement. 
That's the old covenant. To this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to know, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear. Now, every time I draw attention to this profound and deep truth in the scriptures, somebody with good reason comes up to me at the end of the service and says, why would he do that? Why would he withhold enabling? If it's in his power and he's good, why 1,300 more years, not just 40 years, but another 1,300 before he enacts the new covenant by which the law goes from outside to inside and gets written on the heart. Why? He has his reasons. They're hinted at throughout the Gospels and throughout Romans. Romans 3.19 says that the law was spoken to Israel in order that the mouth of the whole world might be stopped. And everyone learned that apart from God, we are helpless, wretched, hard, unresponsive. God had a lesson to teach the world through the Old Testament by doing an old covenant thing instead of a new covenant thing for a thousand years. And if that answer does not suffice, then let us put our hands upon our mouths and say, we are not God. But now Christ comes with a new covenant. And what's new? What's new? Let's read it. Verses 10 and 11. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds and I will write them upon their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother saying, know the Lord, know the Lord. For all of them will know me from the least to the greatest. Now notice the three things that are said here. One, in the new covenant, which was inaugurated by the blood of Jesus, it's called the blood of the covenant. In the new covenant, the will of God is written not on stone tablets on Mount Sinai and presented to people in their rebellion, nor merely on white paper with black ink in Bibles and presented to churches left in their rebellion. Rather, alongside stone and paper comes the Holy Spirit. We could look at Ezekiel and Jeremiah, several places where the Spirit is the agent of the new covenant. The Holy Spirit comes and takes up the law out of the paper, out of the stone, and writes it on the heart. And we'll see before we're done exactly what that means. But at least it means it goes from outside to inside. And no longer does the church of Jesus Christ 
function as self-reliant, independent human beings confronted with a will of God, with a gap between rebellion here, will of God there, and either rebellion and lechery or rebellion and Phariseeism. Those are the only two options apart from the new covenant. If the Holy Spirit does not move in and take that law from out there and make me love it, all I can do is play religion. Some of you are playing this morning. You're just there playing. You don't love the Bible. You don't love Christ. You're just playing. And you need to cry out to God that the new covenant would be fulfilled in your life so that there's reality inside. And it's not like a big, heavy yoke. It's a light yoke and an easy burden. And then it says, I'll be your God. God's going to intrude himself into our lives and be our God. And then it says, and everybody's going to know me when this thing comes to its fullest expression. We won't have to conjole each other and twist each other's arms and hammer away at each other. I won't have to stand up here and do what I'm doing now. When it's finished, because everybody will know the Lord who is appointed to know the Lord. So let me draw it all together. The shadows at Christmas time flee because the Lord of glory, the fulfillment and the completion and the replacement of temple and tabernacle and priesthood and sacrifice and feast and dietary law and circumcision. He's come and there he is standing before us, the reality. And we're to relate to him, not to form. Him, Him, Him in heaven, exalted at the right hand and drawing near by His Spirit. But, if Christmas stops there, we're dead. We're dead. We're gone. We're perished. Because my heart is still hard. Because Jesus stands in front of me doesn't mean I'm a new person. When Christ is presented... In the gospel, like I'm presenting him this morning, or when you present him this Christmas over lunch with somebody, or to a family member, he's presented in his glory as the replacement of the shadows, and you placard him as crucified for sinners, and he's glorious, and you wonder how could anybody say no? Something else has got to happen. And that's the other thing that Christmas means. Namely, the new covenant. The Spirit has to come, take the reality, whether off of a page or out of your mouth or off of a Jesus video or a bumper sticker. He can take it anywhere he wants, but with it, he's got to take it like a pen and go into your heart. That's called conviction when it stabs like that and start to write it. And you feel at that moment like your whole universe is changing. Like for the first time in your life, he's beautiful. The law is right. It is compelling. I delight in the will of God. And that's the new birth. And the progress of that into fullness is sanctification. You know, the glory here is that we have a mediator who does not stand outside and say, there's you in your rebellion and hard-heartedness, and here's God's Saving will over here and even my saving work over here. And I am between you. Come. 
We have a mediator who does not leave us dead in bondage to sin. He does not leave us paralyzed in our so-called free will, which is code name for slavery to self. Sure, we've got free will to die with, to go to hell with. That's all we can do is go to hell with our free will. Left to ourselves, we freely choose sin. And that is all we freely choose. Rather, this great mediator moves inside me and by his grace melts my rebellion, overcomes my resistance and enables me freely for the first real time of freedom in my life to love God, to love God. Do you remember what it says in Deuteronomy 30 verse 6? It's another way of predicting and forecasting the new covenant, namely I will circumcise their hearts so that they love me, says the Lord. Until that time, if all we have is a mediator outside presenting himself to our hard hearts, we will either rebel and go into sin or we will try to make him into a manageable willpower, religion, by which we come to church every Sunday, read our Bible very faithfully and dutifully demonstrate that we can do it. And by that means, die and go to hell. So Christmas means two things. It means that the shadows have been replaced by reality. And it means that God, in his new covenant mercy, has taken the reality and brought it home. Brought it home. All the way in. Father, I pray that that's what you're doing right now. I ask that you would overcome rebellion in our hearts. I pray for those who have not been born of God and therefore do not hear the voice of the Master, but have created a religion in their own making, in their own image to maintain their own sovereign self-determination and that you would break in and deliver and transform and write your will on our heart. And now in this Advent season, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And all the people said, Amen.